Welcome back to For Fintech's Sake. I'm Zach Anderson Pettit, U.S. Content Director at Money 2020, co-founder and hype man for the VSUM community, but most of all, your unqualified host. This week's guest is Matthew Spoke, CEO at Moves. Moves is a neobank serving the gig economy in some unique ways that we'll cover in this episode. Matt's background is absolutely fascinating, so we spent some time there as well. We talked blockchain, audit, how those two things relate, and why he made the move from Web3 to Web2. Uh, dad jokes. Without further ado, enjoy my conversation with Matthew Spoke at Moves. <laughs> how you been, man? How are how are things up north? Good. Yeah, it's uh, we're still living a little bit of like an overly restrictive life, if you ask me. I mean, everybody's got their own opinions, but uh, most of the city's still living under some sort of lockdown. It's cold. Uh, so everybody's got their own little patterns and, and habits, but it's, uh, it's been a little bit groundhog day for a lot longer than I would have liked, but yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean the part when you said it's cold, uh, everybody Matt is calling from Canada. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, yeah, I mean, it seems like things are a bit restrictive. Maybe you can catch me up on some of the current events and, you know, we'll get to FinTech eventually, but what is going on? I heard some joke this morning on something I was listening to about Trudeau, like running for the Hills because some truckers were coming after him. (laughs) I mean, without getting too deep into Canadian politics, because I'm sure that'll bore people to tears, but uh, yeah, there's been uh, the last couple of days, there's been a pretty like well-publicized trucker convoy protest that landed in the Capitol maybe five, six days ago, Elon Musk was tweeting about them. There's a big like $10 million GoFundMe campaign to like support them. Uh, I think it, it originally started on the back of, of some specific policies around uh, truckers crossing the border into the US and needing uh, proof of vaccination on top of like negative tests and all this stuff. Anyways, it sort huh. of turned into uh, the, 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 the banner for anybody who's like on the uh, anti-lockdown, anti-mask, anti-vaccine, side of this. So it's just been contentious. And it just coincidentally, Justin Trudeau got sick with COVID. And now everybody's sort of like, you know, cynically saying, well, maybe this was just a convenient excuse for him to like disappear from the Capitol when all this is happening. So well, who knows? That's wild. So so the issue was truckers going from the from Canada into the US, not the US into Canada. It, it ended up being bilateral, like the US oh, okay. ended up passing a similar policy. So you couldn't cross either way on the border. Originally, it was just uh, entering back into Canada and then it was like entering into the US had this, the same rules applied. And, you know, I think by and large, Canadians are a lot more vaccinated than Americans. I think we're sitting at like 91 or 92% vaccination rates, which is, I think, one of the highest in the world. But truckers are probably closer to like 80, 85, which is still pretty high. Um, and uh, higher, and then, higher than Americans have just been like, you know, if we can show you a negative test, is that not good enough if we're crossing the border or whatever? Yeah. So, um, yeah. What a time to be alive, my friends. It is, it is a wild, uh, unprecedented time. <laughs> it is. Yeah. A good buddy of mine um, actually lives in, well, I think he's in Ontario right now, uh, but he's a podcast producer um, of one of the, actually one of the more famous podcasts on earth. And it's wild to talk because he can mostly only talk at night and he has to like, there's always this like sudden like, oh shit, I got to like 
I got to get up, get out the door and get to my girlfriend's house before the, the, you know, before the, the curfew and Trudeau comes after me and just tackles me in the street, and, you know, and vaccinates me in the street or something, you know, it's, it's, it's just wild. And yeah. I, I wonder how different it would be. And then we'll get into FinTech, but I wonder how different it would be if we moved more oil from Canada to the U S via truck versus via pipeline. I wonder how much quicker some of these things would change. You're you're gonna get me you're gonna get me in trouble for sharing too many of my political views on this stuff, but uh, yeah, there's there's a lot of like weird inconsistencies that come up in these policies that uh, sort of make you question the types of people that are making decisions in our lives. But uh, you know, yeah. it is what it is. We live in these countries, so exactly. Yeah, I would call just twenty since twenty twenty. Since 2020, I think that we can just call everything inconsistent political b- decisions based on beliefs that we're not sure yeah, if exactly. are based in anything. And regardless of where you <laughs> where you are on the on the spectrum today, that viewpoint was probably held by people on the other side of the spectrum like a year ago. You know, it's just like the the narratives keep changing, the story keeps changing. So whatever. Yeah. All we know is the other side is evil. That's all we know is <laughs> fuck them. That's all we know. Yeah. We look down south and we look at how you guys are split along party lines and we're just like, oh, maybe we should do that too. You know, maybe we should hate <laughs> each other for our political beliefs. Let's be more like our American neighbors. I'll tell you what, we're doing a fucking great job at it. It's amazing, man. It's wild how many people are just angry at someone else based on nothing that they actually know about their lives. But anyway, speaking of lives, let's go back to your early life, Matt. Let's get away from all this before I, before I, before I get you canceled. Um, (laughs) So tell me, tell me about the early days. Tell me about you growing up. um, You know, all of, all of that. Have you always been a a Canadian wearing glasses, dying to build technology? I've I've always been a Canadian. I've I've been wearing glasses since a really early age. And I, I think seven, eight years old or something. Um, Actually, this year might be the year. I've been ta- I've been thinking about getting laser eye surgery. I think I think this might be the year. There's been enough time to just like do nothing at home that I may as well go through some sort of procedure while I'm doing it. Um, <laughs> that's, that's the best rationale I've heard for LASIK yet. Yeah, it's, yeah. Just, it's just kind of I have time. Um, and uh, yeah, early life. I mean, my parents are both Canadian. Um, the my my parents were both uh, before before my time uh, working for the federal government as uh, diplomats. So so uh, they met as diplomats in sort of the, the foreign service. Um, so my early childhood, I have two older brothers. We grew up overseas. I was born in Hong Kong. My brothers were born in in, uh, in Central America. Um, lived in a couple places until sort of elementary school age, and then and then sort of made our way back to Canada at that point. Um, so you know, a little bit of a unique background. Not most of which doesn't really like pop up in my memories. It just pops up in like my photo albums. Like I don't sure. remember the time I spent in China when I was two years old. Yeah, but we lived there at a really interesting time. I mean, we left China. I was born in Hong Kong, but we were actually living in Beijing at the time. And we left uh, a day after the Tiananmen Square massacre happened in 1989 because uh, the, all foreigners were kicked out of the country from one to the next uh, wow. you know, after, that, after that happened. So there's some like cool overlap in history, but not, not that I was old enough to remember, but I hear, I hear stories from my parents and it's, it's interesting to sort of like tie the history of my life to the history of these like major global events. But yeah. Um, 
other than that, I mean, because my parents were both uh, diplomats or, or, or public servants, I'd say we had a pretty like normal middle class life. We lived a chunk of our life in Ottawa, which is, you know, to those who aren't familiar, sort of like a D.C. type environment with a lot of government workers. Um, my mom went on to uh, to sort of found and work for a number of, of nonprofits and charities, I think to a large extent uh, was was sort of the, 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 the risk taker or the, uh, the, the, you know, the entrepreneur in her own sense in the family, sure. not, not in, in like the private sector sense, but she, she did a lot of really interesting work in, in nonprofit sectors and spent time sort of traveling into remote parts of Western China, working with orphanages and things of that nature. So wow. she was always a little bit more on the edge. So maybe, you know, I think if you meet my two parents, you realize there's definitely a blend of both. My dad's sort of the even keel. Uh, my mom is the, uh, is, is sort of the adventurer. So, uh, we got a little bit of both in our family. <laughs> That's, that's very interesting. So how many, how many languages do you speak? I think when we talked the first time I might've asked you this and then you were like, uh, yeah, not I mean, as many as you'd hope, but <laughs> not, not too, uh, not too uncommon in Canada, but I, I, I grew up sort of fluent in French and English. Yep. All of my schooling would have been in French. My mom's from the French part of Canada, although we've always lived in the English part of Canada. But, um, so, you know, they, they had always insisted that we, we grow up with a good understanding of French. Yeah. Um, and then Alors, uh, my tu, first school. Tu parles français un peu là-bas avec le, uh, avec le nez un peu. C'est pas, c'est le, le, le français canadien là-bas. Got like the real nasal thing going on yeah i mean i i've 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 spent enough time in enough french environments that i i've become very like fluid with my accent so if i'm hanging out with like you know some some french african friends i can pick up a french yeah. african accent if i'm hanging yeah. out with like some parisian guys i'll I'll pick up a parisian accent. oh dude but, fuck that i'm with you until the parisian thing i can follow <laughs> literally i'm i can follow any dialect of French. I, I love that. Like, especially like a Cameroonian kind of vibe. Um, yeah. and I love Canadian. Well, I don't love Canadian French to be candid. I have nothing I mean, I lean into it. it cause it pisses my, my mom, my mom hates it. My mom, my mom grew up in that part of the country and left when she was 18. Like it was, it's pretty like toxic politics in, in French uh, Canada. Okay. And so a lot of people leave French Canada and they're like, I never want to have anything to do with that place again. Um, wow. and my, my mom was definitely one of those people. So when, when we, you know, we sort of dig in and, and, and put on really, really strong Quebec accents, she doesn't really love it, but, uh, yeah. <laughs> it's and then, so and then, distinct. Um, my, it's so distinct. My first schooling actually was in Portuguese cause we were living in Brazil at the time. So I, like, you know, kindergarten type age, I was, I was in Portuguese school. Um, not that I, have any recollection of much Portuguese, but when you speak French, a lot of these like Latin yeah. languages are, are yeah. not too difficult to sort of like transfer over to. Uh, and then I spent a lot of time studying Mandarin. When I went back to China, spent some time out there. My, in my previous business, I, I had an office out of Shanghai as well as an office in Toronto. So I'd go back and forth quite a bit. And, and, uh, and I spent a year studying Mandarin full time in a, in a university in, in, uh, in Shanghai back in 2007. So um, that's sort of the extent of it. I've learned some Spanish over the years, but nothing fluent. Just enough to be dangerous, it sounds yeah, like. exactly. <laughs> and then to piss your mom off with some French-Canadian, which is still, in my opinion, the least helpful language when it comes to business. I have yet to have a moment where I'm like, oh, thank goodness I know French. Yeah, well, <laughs> let alone let alone the French-Canadian <laughs> accent of French. You, know, right. you, yeah, you yeah, might yeah. find yourself wanting to speak French if you're doing you know business in West Africa, but the French-Canadian accent doesn't even get understood in French countries. So You're right. I That's true. I have Based on the amount of kind of momentum that Africa has right now, especially in the fintech space i you've reinvigorated my hope that there's actually utility to the fact that i know this language i, I have actually, hope. I'm, I'm really curious on the fintech topic like there's there's a lot of really interesting stuff happening out of africa but a lot of it tends to be english speaking african countries yeah, and i'm yeah, curious yeah. whether yeah. or not those trends are going to carry over to some of the french some of the french speaking countries because yeah. 
Yeah. Anyways. Yeah. It's wild. I am obsessed with this show called Trafficked. Uh, and she, this woman named Mariana Van Zeller is just an amazing journalist. She's Portuguese, actually. She's done two seasons of this. And the each show, she goes into a different black market and she'll just go deep, deep, deep into it. And she'll experience, you know, she'll figure out the whole thing. And really, it's just a show about money laundering. Um, but it's really interesting. Oh, fuck. What was, what were we just talking about this? What were we just talking about this? Got me talking about this. We're talking about FinTech in West Africa. Oh yeah, that's right. The amount of, um, the amount of fraud that comes out of Nigeria and Ghana specifically is fascinating. Like all of these scammers, like love scammers and all these other kinds of things. Like I had no clue that that was a thing. So it makes I, a I lot. Have, uh, I, uh, we're going to go off topic a little bit here. But <laughs> I, have a, I have a really close family friend who uh, who lives in Singapore and uh, and got scammed by one of these sort of like stereotypical like uh, Nigerian prince emails you, tells you about a family fortune and, and right. need help getting access to the money. And all you need to do is like transfer one hundred thousand dollars or something. Um, and and uh, and he he got so like taken away by this that he ended up going like really deep into a rabbit hole and sort of like playing into this guy's story and, and like answering all his emails and sort of playing along. Uh, and then eventually like called him out at the end of it and got the guy like super apologetic and like the, and, and ended up on a business trip to Nigeria and met the guy. Whoa. <laughs> and, then, and, then, and then they ended up becoming friends and they've like maintained this relationship. The guy's like, you know, I, I, I don't know why I do this. Like, you know, people do this and where, where I'm from. And, uh, and then they, they built a relationship and have maintained that relationship ever since. It's like maybe seven, eight years ago and they still, they're still in touch. So that's wild, man. Well, yeah. it's, it's wild. I mean, it's, it's, it's a culture and, it's it's almost like hip hop culture, like the same way that here, you know, there's this like everybody wants to be Jay-Z when you grow up, you know, like the hustle vibe and all that kind of thing. Like even if you grow up in the you grow up in this in a suburban area, you still have this idea of like, I'm going to sell drugs and that's, you know, yeah. And then I'm going to go to the league and it's like, no, you're going to go study accounting. Shut the hell up. But it's, you know, <laughs> it's a real I accounting. Let's be careful here, Zach. <laughs> well, I'm not saying there's anything wrong with it. I'm saying that's the right direction compared to what we're talking about. But the Nigerian, like it's, it's fascinating and not like I know what I'm talking about, but this one show goes really deep into it to the point where like, there's even like rappers, like building their entire brand around scamming and it being like glorified over yeah. there, which is really interesting. So anyways, let's get back to you. So <laughs> after you you grew up, you had a lot of, a lot of international experience. So take, take me to Deloitte because this is where shit starts to really get real. And this is where, when we first talked, I could not believe the story. So take, take me there and take me to kind of you getting into the world of blockchain and, and all that. Yeah. I mean, up until a certain point, um, you know, my, my education, my career, my, uh, you know, my, my, my prospects were pretty standard. I, I went to school for a business. I specialized in accounting, not because I had ever found it fascinating or, or like a passion of mine. I was just sort of a lost soul at 19, 20 years old. And I, I doubled down on whatever courses I was getting the best grades in. Um, and I ended up at Deloitte after graduating from university, um, in a pretty standard sort of early, like entry level CPA role to, to work towards your certification. Uh, I, I decided to sort of double down and focus on, on, uh, international tax consulting specifically, where I was sort of working on, you know, multinational type structures and, and like tax planning for, for corporations. Um, and, and in Canada, it's probably similar in the U S but in Canada, generally, when you join a firm like Deloitte, you got about three years 
of practical work that you need to do to be able to like qualify for your CPA designation, right? So you're sort of mm-hmm. working away on a bunch of like professional hours. Um, I knew within six months of joining the firm that I was going to like poke my own eyeballs out. It was like treacherously <laughs> yeah. boring work and I'm not yeah. a very like detail oriented person. And this is like, Dude, what did you study accounting for? You're not a very detail oriented person. I mean, the good thing is like coming out of coming out of accounting. What I've learned since then is that you get you definitely learn sort of like the language of of like business finances, which is like a useful skill, right? To be able to like know how to read a balance sheet and know how to like interpret sort of financial statements and things like that. But, anyways, six months into Deloitte, pretty quickly realized this is not for me. But I had committed to finishing my my professional designation. So as I was getting closer to my CPA sort of end date, like three years or so after uh, I let, I let a couple of my, my sort of senior leaders know that I was thinking about going back to school. I, I, you know, I, I think probably a, not an uncommon story for people that don't really have like a clear direction of what they want to do their, with their career. They just keep sort of taking another stab at school saying, maybe I'll try something else. So I was going to go do my MBA figuring, Hey, this is going to reset maybe a more generic skill set, introduce me to a bunch of people that come from different backgrounds. I really wanted to go do an MBA in internationally. I wanted to get out of Canada. So I applied to a couple of schools. I got excited. I got accepted into uh, Oxford and uh, the University of Hong Kong, um, and I ultimately chose to to accept the, the 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 University of Hong Kong had this joint program with the London Business School. So it was going to be like half the program in Asia, half the program in Europe, um, and everything was lining up. I told the firm I was resigning, and then just by random coincidence, Deloitte CEO at the time announced to sort of the staff, hey, you know, we're, we're falling behind. We're, we're a pretty outdated consulting firm. We do a lot of auditing. We're not really all that plugged into like new fields of innovation and technology and whatever. So they opened up this like call for proposals from employees. It was pretty like unique. And they wow. like, if you have an idea, if you have a topic that you're interested in, that you, you, you have like a particular insight into, you can write a proposal, submit it. They had, they built this like online portal. Uh, and then after proposals had been submitted, other employees could read these proposals and vote on the ones they thought were most interesting. Um, and it just so happened that at the time, this is sort of like 2012, um, 2013, I had gotten introduced to Bitcoin from my brother. Um, I started buying Bitcoin. It was like $140, $150. Um, and, uh, and I was like, yeah, you know what? Why not? I'll, 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 uh, I'll go out with a bang. I'll, I'll write a paper about Bitcoin. Um, and I'll go out with a bang. That's funny. <laughs> I'll go out with a bang. You know, it's a, Deloitte and and firms like it are pretty conservative, risk averse environments, right? Bitcoin yeah. in 2012 is not exactly a risk averse topic. I'm shocked they put out the RFP thing. I mean, just that alone is pretty yeah, groundbreaking. I mean, it, 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 and I, I want to give them credit where, where credits due, but it you know it's one thing to like ask for ideas; it's another thing to follow through on actually yeah. doing something about it, right? But right. So with no expectations, I wrote this paper about Bitcoin. The angle that I took was. That, you know, Bitcoin introduced to the world this whole effectively like perfectly transparent financial system and other technologies were being innovated out of the concept of Bitcoin, right? Ethereum had not yet existed at this time. Um, no, there wasn't really a lot. Dogecoin might've been in market. Litecoin was in market. There was a couple mm, of like Bitcoin. Doge was a game changer. I'm, I'm sure your CEO was excited about Doge. Yeah, exactly. And uh, <laughs> But, you know, I think being naive as I was like at that age, because, you know, you don't spend a, a whole career building up like an auditing profession. But, you know, the question in my mind was, if Bitcoin is transparent and we all start transacting in Bitcoin, 
uh, what do you need an auditor for? Because an auditor's role effectively is to come in and like verify that you said what you said you were going to do, or you paid what you said you were going to pay, or your bank right. statement matches what your financial statements say, or you know all these like verifications of of what is typically a pretty like obscure financial system that we live in today. Yeah, uh, and so I wrote this paper about that. It, it got really really. Um, uh, I guess a lot of votes from from like colleagues and peers and, and other employees at the firm. Yeah. Um, How much work did I, you put into it? That you told me about this quickly when we talked last, but I, I was after talking to you, I was like, did he like put it like was this this his dissertation? Was this his thesis? No, you know, like, was, the, like no, how much like did three, we put four into page it? Page paper. I mean, I spent a couple of hours on a week over a weekend writing okay. this down. I sent it to a couple of people to like read it and, and edit it for me, and okay. and then I submitted it on like a Monday after deciding I was going to do this on a Friday. You know, it wasn't it wasn't a ton of work. Gotcha. Um, okay. And because I I had already told them I was leaving, I was out the door maybe three four months later for my my schooling. Wow. Um, and okay, uh, I'm and impressed you wrote that. the thing, dude. I I mean. I've been at enough organizations on the way out. I, uh, you, you must've, you must've had some love for Deloitte. Like they must've treated you really well. Yeah, and Deloitte, you must've Deloitte had treated some, me pretty well. I mean, and, yeah. and there was talk about, Hey, if you go do your MBA, Deloitte also has a management consulting arm that's separate from it's sort of like auditing and, and tax yeah. arm. And like, you know, if you ever want to come back, we, we would consider, you know, paying for a chunk of your MBA. So I was like, you know what? It's better off like holding on to a positive relationship here. Yeah. Um, those couple of months after writing that paper, uh, I guess things got started moving on this, this sort of like RFP internal competition thing. And my paper just kept getting pushed forward and forward and forward until I got to a place where I was pitching the concept to the CEO, um, in like an in-person setting. And, uh, and like a day or two later, I, one of the sort of senior executives at the light got back to me and said, like, we think we want to support you to go and like do this. I was like, well, I don't know like what I would do, but they're like, well, we don't know either, but like, we don't know anything about this. Um, maybe you should just go and get smart on this industry and we'll support, we'll sponsor you in doing that. Um, I was like, well, I'm leaving in six weeks to go do my MBA. They're like, well, if you stick around, we'll give you a budget. We'll let you hire a team. We'll give you as much autonomy as sort of you need to do this. Um, and you can always go back to do your MBA next year or the year after, like just sort of ask the school to, to postpone. So I did. So I effectively pulled back from my MBA. I stuck around. Deloitte moved me into, they had a loose sort of department that they called the innovation department, meaning I just had a new boss uh, that was sort of overlooking what I was doing to a certain extent. But I had a huge amount of autonomy. I mean, they, they let me go external from the firm and rent my own office space on a corporate credit card. They let me hire wow. sort of like co-op software engineering students that I could bring in from to like help me sort of like like I'm not, a, I'm not an engineer. So I needed people that were like technical enough to be able to like help me just dabble with the tech. Um, yeah. and I did that for about a year and a half. It, it, it just so happened that at the time that I was doing that, this is a project that we, we launched. It was called Rubik's by Deloitte. Uh, it was the first consulting firm in the world to, to go down this path with the, with, in the crypto space. And we launched this thing and I was based in Toronto and sort of in that same couple of months, um, Ethereum was being was being rolled out as a proof of concept. There was an early version of the Ethereum network. Vitalik Buterin was based in Toronto. His family was from here. There was meetups happening, and so I started getting. I didn't know in that. Wow. Okay. Um, and uh, and then it just sort of like a lot of overlap. I mean, what the work that I was doing at Deloitte started to look at Ethereum more than at Bitcoin. We're like, hey, maybe Ethereum is the system where really you're going to see more interesting commerce happening, more interesting yeah. applications getting built. Um, and so I did that for about a year and a half, and until I ultimately decided to leave the firm and start my own business, uh, in that space. But, um, yeah. So was the thesis to, I mean, to your earlier point, like this is a public blockchain, what the hell do we do here? Was the thesis we can go in and audit 
permissioned blockchains was it like so i, I imagine a lot of blockchains yeah. were popping up this was this was also when the big banks were doing their consortiums right and they were trying to yeah so it's sort of right before that i mean in 2000 i left the firm in 2016 so i was working okay. on this for deloitte 2014 to 2015 um you know uh, i think ethereum launched july of 2015 um and uh, and and consortium private blockchains were not really a thing yet. So we were we were among the first to say, hey, there was there were companies that like are interested enough in the tech that they want to like experiment with it, but they they're not quite ready to commit to like yeah. public Bitcoin or anything like that. So it was almost building out these like prototyping environments. So we 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 built a almost replica of the Ethereum code base that you could spin up like your own private little Ethereum network within your organization or between you and a couple of other orgs. Damn. That was like the product that we were building initially uh, and selling it into and saying, hey, we can help you prove out like a, a proof of concept. When when I left Deloitte, uh, our first client was the Toronto Stock Exchange. Um, we went to the Toronto Stock Exchange and said, hey, they, they have a subsidiary that does natural gas trading. And it's one of their smaller business lines. So like, hey, we'd, like, we'd love to build out sort of a, a proof of concept for you of what natural gas trading could look like if you were to tokenize it on a blockchain. And everybody who's participating in sort of the supply chain of, of natural gas could sort of plug into this network. And this would be the ledger of natural gas trade in North America. Um, and so with that, those types of use cases, there was other organizations at the time that were popping up, um, like IBM was starting to do a lot more in the space. Yeah. R3 yeah. was a new org. Uh, yeah. yeah. R3 was one of the consortiums, right? Yeah. R3 was one of the early consortiums that, yeah. that was getting spun out. Yeah. It's funny. It's like, I was so deep. I was actually, I was a product manager in an outsourced development firm. And I was like, not sure if I was going to go back into fintech or what i wanted to do with my life i just left a, a fintech startup and i remember just digging into this world and being like so confused but amazed that the big banks were working together which is what made yeah. me pay attention to it i was like okay if these big banks are willing to be friends on something clearly something is about to happen here that they're scared shitless of and yeah, it was that, a little bit torn because like i was building out we did we did a project with the five big canadian banks like canada is a very different banking environment than the u.s it's sort of a, a pretty protected like oligopoly of five uh, yeah. uh, chartered banks and we did a project where we got all five of them to sign off as participants and this this like consortium that we built in Canada uh, focused on how they traded um, like blacklisted traded like blacklisted accounts effectively. So if you're the use mm. case was like if you're an employee of a publicly traded company uh, and you're not allowed to trade within certain windows because you have potential insider information, that information gets shared among the banks so that you can't have an account at, let's say, RBC, turn around, open an account at TD and trade on a stock that you're not allowed to. Yeah. Uh, so RBC and TD would trade it, would, would exchange information about sort of these restrictions. And they were doing this like over facts and, and there was forms that had to be filled out. And so we built out this like sort of portal where they could all like upload and, and it would get, you know, the, the, the evidence of the fact that a document had been shared would get stamped to this private blockchain, et cetera, et cetera. So this was one, an example of like an early use case. Yeah. I mean, it was fun to be working on, on a new tech. It was sort of humbling to be working with these big companies, but the use cases were really boring. Like this was not like transformative <laughs> stuff, right? Like yeah. on one side I was like becoming this crypto geek, but then like my company was selling pretty generic, proof of concept software to big companies that were really, really like 
risk averse. Uh, so, you know, that lasted for as long as it did before I was like, I really want to get deeper into like the actual crypto side of this because, you know, the banks all wanted the blockchain, but they didn't want the crypto, you know, and there's, right. uh, I think that's changed quite a bit in the last number of years, but that was the early days. Yeah. So the next step is you jumping all the way into the deep end, right? I mean, starting your own company in the space. And also you ended up on the uh, Enterprise Ethereum Alliance board. I'm curious about that as well, kind of how that came about. Yeah. So, yeah. So two, two steps. So when I left Deloitte, the premise was effectively a continuation of what I was doing at Deloitte. It was like, hey, we could build a startup that only works with big companies, that only works in sort of the, the enterprise space. Deloitte was becoming a little bit restrictive because as we grew, we were a 12-person team by the time I decided to leave. And Deloitte had never built or incubated any like products or software or anything like that. You know, it's sure. a consulting company. So there's a lot of stuff like I'd have to go and like request more budget to do. And, and it, it just didn't fit the way they thought about their business, right? And yeah. I need $3 million to go hire more people. They're like, well, why? Like what, what revenue are you getting off of this or whatever? Right. So ultimately I decided to leave with a couple of people that had been on my team at Deloitte. Um, and then the, the idea for the startup was a, hey, let's keep doing the type of work we were doing at Deloitte, but let's do it without sort of all the strings attached. Those our three had not launched yet. Uh, consensus, uh, the big sort of Ethereum incubator studio out of New York was just yeah. getting started at the time. Um, and it seemed like there was a space to to do something relatively unique. We had a pretty close relationship with a lot of the people sort of in the early Ethereum crew, including Vitalik and others. And there was a lot of support to say, hey, it would be helpful to us if there were companies that were focusing on uh, popularizing Ethereum in, in, in the enterprise world, right? So mm-hmm. um, just to like almost as like a form of education and a form of just you know, getting their their guards down as to like this big, scary technology. Yeah. Um, so that's what the, the business was focused on. It was it, it was sort of a pseudo consulting business because we were building our own like underlying tech in the sense that, you know, you had to spin up a consortium blockchain network. But then the use cases were all like custom consulting, right? Like we would we would like customize an app for you or a portal or some sort of use case for you. Um, and then we, we discovered along the way. Uh, in fact, Vitalik was was pretty uh pretty critical to this process, he started highlighting that there was a couple of companies globally that were starting to overlap. So there was us in Toronto, there was Consensus in New York, there was another company called Block Apps that was actually Joe Lubin's son had started this company called Block Apps. Um, and then there was one out in Germany and there was a lot of like similarities, sort of, hey, you're working with big companies, you're taking the Ethereum code base and you're doing something sure. sort of custom around it. Yeah. And we started having these really informal touch points like, Hey, how are you approaching this? What are you, what are you doing to solve this problem? How are you converting the public Ethereum code base into a private Ethereum code base? And those conversations effectively started to become more and more organized where we'd get together in person in a city, we would talk, we would share specs, our engineering teams would, would sort of collaborate. And then ultimately we, we made a decision in 2017, early uh, February. So I think we were working on this throughout 2016. We ended up officially starting a nonprofit organization in 2017 called the Enterprise Ethereum Alliance. Um, It was intended to be sort of a partner organization to the Ethereum Foundation, but the EEA, as we called it, uh, was going to work with sort of the the big companies that were not quite ready to jump two feet into crypto, right? So um, Microsoft was part of the founding group. Uh, Accenture was part of the founding group. There was 11 companies 
of which we were one. We were a startup, but they're like, hey, yeah. we want a couple of startups and we want some big sort of sponsor companies. So JP Morgan was at the table. Yeah. And so we, we created this organization with a board of 11 people to represent these 11 companies. Uh, so I was, uh, I've, I've been on the board ever since, um, even though it's Ooh. sort of like less relevant to the day-to-day of what I do today, but, yeah. um, and who, it's, it, yeah, quick, quick question. Sorry, Matt, who did the selling of this? Like who, who went to Accenture and was like, Hey, you should get on this thing. And what did that conversation go like, if you have any idea? <laughs> no, well, so what we, what we discovered along the way is that in a lot of these big companies, there were sort of like guys like me when I was at the uh-huh. white that yeah, were yeah, starting yeah. to like dabble in this stuff. Right. And so when we, when we stumbled on Microsoft had a team, a guy named uh, Marley Gray, who had been doing a lot of work and then York Rhodes after him, uh, who'd been doing a lot of work just on the side of their desk. They were just like interested enough. And so there was these little like experiments popping up in these companies organically. And a lot of times it was like a young person or a young team that just like got interested and they had enough flexibility in their job that they could just spend some of their cycles sort of like learning about this stuff. And so what we discovered along the way is that there was a team like this at Accenture. There was a team like this at JP Morgan. There was a team like this at Microsoft. Um, And then it was just like, well, let's start talking to each other and figure out if there's a way to be more coordinated. Bank of New York Mellon had a team. Um, and so that's that it was very informal initially by the time we were formalizing the EEA, all of a sudden these companies all had to officially sign off because they were actually joining, uh, 501c3 nonprofit like group. Right. And so the companies had to like be, and there was a membership fee and there was, that's what I was going to ask where they put, were they ponying up at all? Yeah. Yeah. There was a press conference. We did a big press conference at the JP Morgan office in New York, uh, with all the founding members. And we invited the sort of the crypto media, you know, the coin desks and the, right. 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 um, Yeah. And it was a pretty big, like it was a pretty big deal. And then, and then we actually started because there was a membership fee, uh, there was a budget in the EEA. So the EEA now has a, a full-time staff. It has a permanent executive director. It has a marketing director. It has a community director. And it recruits members around the world. So it, it, you know, it reaches out to banks in Japan, in Germany, in Switzerland, and says, do you want to be a member of the EEA? Uh, and like, if you've got a little blockchain experimental team, then they can part, they can sort of collaborate with teams and other companies. And so it was this, it was this like neutral space to just like talk shop about this new emerging technology effectively. It's wild. That's amazing how that came together. I really thought that was going to be a much more, well, actually, I mean, I guess it makes sense. I thought it was going to be a much more formal story, but I guess it makes sense that these things are going to bubble up no, from I the mean, bottom. The, and... the types of people, like there was a, there was a woman at the time, she's not at JP Morgan anymore, but the, one of the women that was leading their teams, Amber Balday, and if you ever met Amber in real life, like Amber, you think JP Morgan, you, you're going to, you know, New York, JP Morgan, people like suits and, and nice haircuts. Yeah. You know, Amber's got tattoos down her arm. She's got purple hair. And she was like somewhere inside one of these like tech innovation teams at JP Morgan and just became like, like caught the crypto bug. And, you know, it was people like that and all these organizations that just had this, this sort of passion in common. So um, it eventually got formalized. And, and frankly, that's when it started getting less exciting to me, but mm-hmm. uh, it was, it was fun in the early days. It was, it was exciting. Yeah. That, the last piece of that is sadly not uh not too surprising. <laughs> so let's jump in. Well, do you, I mean, should we take a stop at Aon and talk about the, the open application network or should we jump into moves? It seems like Aon's probably a, am I pronouncing it right? Yeah. Yeah. Aon, Aon sort of, I'll, I'll, t- I'll touch on it quickly just cause it's a part of the story. I mean, I think, that realization that working with big companies goes from like theoretically exciting to very bureaucratic and very slow and very uh, frustrating. If you're somebody who's excited about a fast moving field of technology, 
Yeah. You don't want to be caught having to work with a bank on a day-to-day basis. Like it's just, uh, so ultimately in 20, in the second half of 2017, I, I, I pretty aggressively pivoted the focus of our business towards building out like public blockchain infrastructure, building out a cryptocurrency ecosystem, working on a, on an area that we thought was an opportunity to sort of like bring some new innovation to the, to the space around, uh, what we were calling blockchain interoperability at the time. Like how would you get blockchain applications across different networks sort of interacting with each other. And so we built and launched this thing in 2017, worked on it until, until sort of the end of 2019. Um, and, and, you know, Aon is still, it still, it still exists. I mean, like a lot of these technologies, the moment you open source it, the moment you have people sort of like using it in some way on some frequency, like there's a coin, there's a market cap, there's a, there's a community, there's an open source tech that still gets used. Uh, but frankly, the, the tech that we were building, there were better funded competitors to us. There were people like Polkadot and Cosmos and uh, yeah. others that were coming to market. So, um, you know, end of 2019, the writing was sort of on the wall that, that there wasn't much sort of future hope for the tech stack that we had built. But um, and then I started I started putting my attention to like, what do I want to do next? man all right so we're gonna go this is uh, i love this conversation because it's in so many ways the opposite of how the world has progressed right like as the time when you were digging into blockchain and digging into cryptocurrency the rest of the world was thinking about putting lipstick on a pig with a neo bank and a back end you know sponsor bank that actually is no different than what they had at B of oh, A. Yeah. Maybe even maybe even worse, right? And you were thinking about, well, I don't know if we want to call it Web3 or DeFi or you know, pick your buzzword, yeah. whatever. You're at least thinking about cryptocurrency. And then out of some stroke of logic or I don't know, just a desire to make real, what do they call them? Dollars, I guess the Canadian or US kind. Uh, you built a, a company that that functions in the modern day without too much of a futuristic. Well, I mean, it's a futuristic bent, dope company, but you know, it's yeah. not something that you're going to see on minority minority report. So yeah. tell me, tell me about that shift in almost like going back to what I perceive as a simpler technology, but maybe the interoperability yeah. and everything else makes me incorrect on that. No, I, I mean, I, I think that's, I've never heard anybody frame it that way, but you're right. I mean, I, I've sort of been on the edge and I, and I pulled back and I'm now, I'm now operating in what I would consider not a very like technically forward industry, but there's innovation happening on like the consumer experience, not necessarily the tech, right? Like the right. tech is banking. The tech is yeah. these are payment rails. The tech is stuff that's been around for decades, right? So, yep. yeah, that was the pig I was referring to, and yeah. you were the you were the lipstick I was referring to. Well, I, I appreciate that. <laughs> At least I'm the lipstick in that. Of course, of course, very nice uh, lipstick too. You know, a good kind of got a good rouge, you know, kind of situation. But yeah, um, actually, I was I, the one one way to frame it that I think I think uh, I heard recently on a I was on a web webinar or something like that with, with the guy who runs the visa crypto team, his name's Terry. Um, and, um, the way he framed it, cause they, they do They're doing a lot of investment in crypto at visa. And the way he framed it is that, you know, most of the problem to solve actually is nothing to do with how, uh, fundamentally high tech, the underlying systems are the payment networks are most of the problem to solve is distribution and, uh, universality of adoption, right? So yep. what visa has going for it is that is it, it's a payment system accepted in every single store in the world, right? Like there is no question about whether you're going to be able to use your visa card. If you're traveling in every single country, if you're trying to build out an economy that relies on Dogecoin, you're going to run into a lot of gaps in terms of where Dogecoin is accepted and, and like sort of point of sale integrations. And so, 
you know, what the banking system has and what, what operators like Visa and MasterCard have is they have distribution and they have um, ubiquity effectively, right? So I think where, where crypto fell short for me is that in trying to solve problems in the real world, you, you're, you're always one step away from that ubiquity. Yeah. And the problems required to become ubiquitous are so infrastructure heavy. They, they take time. They take, uh, they take really like social change to get there. Like these are not things that are going to happen overnight, right? So as, as far along as Bitcoin has progressed and Ethereum has progressed and others, you still can't walk into a corner store and buy something using DAI, you know, your right. stable coin. Um, but there's reasons that that tech stack is more sophisticated and it has more, more flexibility and power in the future. But an average consumer still needs to be able to buy their groceries and pay their rent and do these right. things, right? So that's where I got frustrated in sort of the tail end of the crypto days for me was uh, not being able to go all the way into the life of a, a normal person um, and actually solve a problem that went beyond just like building a portfolio of, of cryptocurrencies or tokens or whatever. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so naturally that brought me back into, I'd say, a more a more established uh, tech space like the fintech space. There's a lot of work being done to make the fintech space more adaptable to like modern trends and new consumer like behaviors and things like that. Like the banking as a service tech players that are building sort of that layer that sits between sponsor banks and consumer companies. I think they're enabling a lot, but they're not changing the underlying fundamentals. The underlying fundamentals are still, hey, we charge service fees on interchange. Yeah. Uh, you know, we might have overdraft. We, you know, all these things that are just like basic banking, right? Yeah. Um, so I think there's starting there with a path towards some of these newer technologies, but starting with it, with actually being able to get like a foothold in the life of a consumer. Um, that's what got me excited. I mean, all of a sudden I went from Aon being a very, very research heavy, engineering heavy, infrastructure heavy undertaking where we were building a new system from scratch. Um, you know, we need like the types of people that, that we would hire were, you know, distributed computing uh, PhDs and, and cryptographers and, yeah. and and that was interesting from like an academic perspective, but um, now the types of people we're hiring are people that understand how to identify and solve consumer problems, right? Real people's problems on a day-to-day -day basis. So yeah. it's a very different layer. Um, and and I think, you know, they, they will probably meet at some point in the near future. And there's already examples of where, where those two worlds are colliding. Um, but I think distribution through traditional, maybe like web two fintech uh, is still going to be the leading way to get a product in the hands of a customer. I think for the next decade, uh, while the crypto ecosystem continues to sort of like mature behind the scenes or under the hood. I, yeah, L listeners cannot hear me shaking my head up and down viscerally <laughs> with a lot of, uh, a lot of emotion and agreement, but, uh, folks that are watching on YouTube, you can probably tell that I agree. It's hilarious to me, dude. I'm going down this web three rabbit hole right now. Like get it as a, as a day job, basically for money, 2020 doing research and, Number one, I have yet to fall upon, I maybe have met like a black guy and one woman in the space that is actually like doing something of note and of, of interest. And yeah. that's not, there's literally one black guy and one woman doing that. Just like, that's who I've met so yeah. far. Yeah. And the preponderance has just been white dudes that don't really have any problems that think they're solving a problem. <laughs> and then they think that somehow that's going to bank the underbanked. And this just like this, this disconnect in terms of, yeah in terms of that and how powerful those brains are. And if we were to take those brains, put them in your world to your point, 
the we have the solutions to 99% of our financial problems. Just the distribution is not there yet. Right. Like yeah. you and I know the answers and fintech nerds know the answers. But how do you get that in the hands of the right person at the right time? To your point. So, yeah, I, I mean, I think that it's I think it's becoming the, the industry is definitely attracting the, 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 the Web3 industry is attracting more seasoned experience but you know the 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 sort of ogs in the space definitely were solving what i would consider sort of like almost theological problems right they yeah. it wasn't real world problem they sort of have this philosophy around how the world should work they have yeah. these these principles that they 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 really fun, fundamentally believed in and and it was uh, that's what got people excited. It was almost like joining a religious movement is there's this, there's this aspiration for a better future, yeah. but it wasn't necessarily rooted in like the reality of how things work in normal people's lives. Right. So, um, and, and not to say that that's bad because I think the, the evolution of that industry is such that it's starting to attract more people that can connect the dots a little bit more. Um, and we're starting to see early signals of those dots getting connected, but, um, yeah, definitely almost uh, too much of an ideological starting point uh, to actually impact a normal person's, you know, daily life. Totally. Yeah. I just, I just watched the, uh, <laughs> I'm probably going to lose a couple friends, but for, for the record, I am pro crypto pro web. Like I am all about all this shit. Um, but to your point about the joining religion thing, I just finished the QAnon into the storm documentary and watching all, I think it was like six episodes, seven episodes the amount of overlap, like it's, it's hard to not sit there and be like, wow, this feels a lot like crypto. <laughs> like, I'm, I'm not saying it's the same thing. I'm just saying there's, there's some culty vibes. I think, depending I think there's on a lot, how of, deep a lot you go. of movements like, like this that have similarities in the sense that yeah. people view the world for what they would like it to be. They have sort of a purist view as to how things should work. And, over time, you need to sort of close the gap between that like purist perspective and like the practical reality of how things actually yeah. work, right? And like that's where you start to find compromise and actually a, a real path towards solving real problems, right? Because I think sort of just rooting yourself in these just like yeah, you know, conspiracy views or purist views, like you just end up getting nowhere because you're, you're yeah. Good. yeah. Um, yeah. yeah, the yeah, yeah. Well, we'll we'll leave Bitcoin maximalists aside for that. Oh uh, well, whew, good because we still got <laughs> we still got some things to cover. So if I would have pissed you off already, I'd be <laughs> fucked. Um, so what was the founding? What was the founding thesis behind Moves? It makes sense to me why you went, you know, the direction you went, and I find it fascinating and logical, and I agree with it. Um, but what was the founding thesis there? And also, why the U.S. market living in Canada? Yeah, so I think the founding story, there's there's sort of like the, the unexciting version and the more exciting version. So the unexciting version is that I was still working on Aon in 2019. Um, and it was becoming obvious to me that there was we were not finding sort of fit in terms of like where this tech stack we were building would actually be applied in real life. So yeah. we started doing almost these like in, these case studies around, hey, let's let's imagine like an industry that has problems that we think could be solved using decentralized tech, you know, web three tech. Um, and we, and, and I had people on the team just like brainstorming around, Hey, how would we rebuild sort of the social media industry? And how would we rebuild this industry? And how would we rebuild that industry? And just writing out sort of like blogs and papers around this, this, this thesis. Right. Uh, and one of the industries that I got really excited about was digging into like the way the gig economy was built. And there's, mm -hmm. I think there's a lot of people that very simplistically have said, Imagine if the gig economy was built on a blockchain and imagine if, you know, a driver and a passenger could, in, you know, directly transact with each other 
without an Uber taking a 20, 30, 40% cut of the, of the, of, and you know, it, it's a little bit, it, it's almost laughable because like you need to build this system. You need to fund this system. You need to, there needs to be incentives that need to be considered, but it was right. an interesting sort of theoretical exercise to say, Hey, what, what would redesigning Uber on, on the blockchain actually look like? That's not obviously where we ended up, but what, what that required was that we spent a lot of time getting to know how that market was built, the early sort of origin stories of these companies, how they sort of got their first network effects in key cities and how they launched. Um, and, you know, trying to map out, like, is there a scenario where these companies could either pivot towards a decentralized model or is there a scenario where a new decentralized competitor could emerge and, and start to capture market share? Um, and as, you know, long story short, fast forward to the end of that year, I decide I'm I'm putting Aon sort of to bed. We're we're shutting down the operations of that of that 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 company. Um, but now I had all this sort of like pent up knowledge around what the gig economy was, and it just so happened that in 2019 um, in California there was a huge amount of talk around this new law that they were they were debating called AB5, right. um, and I, I didn't really know the relevance of it. I started reading about it. Uh, I had a chance in 2019 to spend some time with one of the early, early execs at Uber, a guy named Ryan Graves, who was uh, who was actually the first CEO at Uber before Travis, because Travis hired a CEO before he ultimately like took the role himself. Yeah, yeah. Um, but People like to just think that he just willed that thing into existence. He just yeah. like shat it one day and it yeah. just, you know, magically Travis Kalanick just creates gold everywhere. Well, and Ryan, Ryan Graves went on to sort of be the COO uh, for nine, 10 years throughout, like all of the big day, like the big growth yeah. days of Uber. And I had a chance to spend a, a good chunk of time with him. And, um, Anyways, all this to say that AB5 started highlighting to me that the problem was not in how Uber was designed in terms of like how it connected passengers and drivers. The problem that I could see is that drivers did not feel like they were along for the ride in terms of like the economic incentives that made Uber succeed did not make drivers succeed. Right. Uh, and so as Uber became this massive success story and this huge market cap, you know, and I say Uber sort of ubiquitously, but you could equate that to Lyft and Instacart and DoorDash and any of these other companies. Um, they had not necessarily brought their workers along with them on that success, right? So if you think about a tech company, um, you know, with stock options for their workers, the, the company succeeds, the workers succeed, right? And in this context, if you were an employee of Uber, you did really well. But if you were yeah. a driver for Uber, their success didn't actually translate to you. And so this gap was starting to be felt, I think, in terms of like where these policies were going was Uber drivers feeling disenfranchised, feeling that they were sort of like second class citizens inside these ecosystems. Like consumers were the most important. The workers were sort of the second class citizen. Uh, and so all of the innovation, all of the economic value was sort of shifting to the consumer side of these markets. And at the end of the day, these are double sided markets, right? So Uber doesn't work unless they can balance their supply with their demand. And it just felt like a lot of the work and emphasis was going on to the demand side of the market. Uh, yeah. And they were almost taking for granted that there's enough desperate people out there that'll work for anything, that there will always be supply to fill the, fulfill the demand. Uh, and that was the imbalance that sort of caught my attention to say, hey, you know, nobody is building to solve problems for the driver or the supply. Uh, could we be the product that, you know, uh, universally only looks after workers. Um, and, you know, what problems they had, we needed to get better, more familiar with, you know, exactly where we should start. We hadn't really sort of started, like firmly decided, hey, this is the starting point of our product. But we knew, yeah. hey, if we start talking to gig workers, we're going to start to identify frictions and challenges and sort of pain points that they deal with regularly. Let's build a product in that space. And, and we could be 
uh, useful to the worker, but and complementary to the marketplace. So not hostile to Uber, not hostile to Lyft. But if by existing in this market, we hope that we actually make the balance of supply and demand healthier. Uh, and so that that was sort of the early the early thesis that got me started down this path. Yeah. So more, I guess I want to pull on that thread of the the kind of relationship with the supply side. Like as moves, were you having conversations with the Ubers of the world, with the Lyfts of the world, like trying to almost acting as an intermediary, trying to make it all better? Or did it come down to building tools for the gig economy to be able to just kind of do it themselves because Uber, Lyft, whoever wasn't going to really change? Yeah, a little bit of both. I mean, we spent quite a bit of time. Actually, the first product we launched was in Canada because we didn't really know what we were doing in terms of like the tech stack we needed or or that even in fact that we were going into being sort of yeah. a full stack, like neo banking product to a certain extent. Yeah. So it and wasn't financial at this point then? Well, we weren't sure, but what what sort of pivoted us towards a financial product was the pandemic, right? When the pandemic hit, like I, yeah. I officially started this business in February of 2020. By April, oh man, um, I wish I would have known you then. I would have invested. <laughs> All the best businesses started in February 2020 and yeah. March. Yeah, so it was, and, and like you know, the gig economy was obviously topical and important. We didn't realize how topical and important it would become. Like the, the pandemic, I think, has really shone a light on this class of worker. Yeah. Um, but in, by April, it might have been mid, mid-March, Uber and Lyft drivers across North America and probably across the world saw the demand for their services sort of evaporate overnight, right? Like people stopped leaving their houses. And, and right. so, you know, peak demand dropped by 95% within a week. And so if you relied on Uber mm. to earn a living, all of a sudden there was a massive gap in your in your earning capability. So and they had we hadn't quite seen the beginning of the trend that led to grocery delivery and food delivery right. picking up, uh, which ultimately ended up replacing a lot of that lost work. Uh, but really, really early on, um, that's where we started. We said, hey, let's build a sort of a bridge loan product uh, for Uber and Lyft drivers and frame it as sort of like a COVID emergency loan, uh, yeah. give you 90 days to sort of get over this hump. Let's see if we can partner with these companies to actually like get get the word out that, hey, there's this company out there that'll yeah. offer you up to $2,500 as a loan if you are if you can demonstrate that you've like consistently worked as an Uber driver for a period of time or a Lyft driver. And that's what got us started down that path. I mean, as we got into consumer lending, we then realized like how to position it and, and how the mechanics of the product needed to work. And we sort of evolved from there. Um, you started with the hardship first, man. That's like the number of companies that start by lending. I mean, they generally yeah. end up being gigantic, but that is hard. Yeah. And then, and then the second trend that sort of followed right after was that a lot of uh, Uber drivers were pivoting towards food delivery. Yeah. Um, and and then so in that pivot, there was a lot of people that wanted to get out of their cars and get onto scooters uh, because we, we were in Toronto doing most of this work and Toronto is a pretty like dense downtown city. Yeah. And so then we pivoted our loan to say, well, we'll help you finance the purchase of your scooter. We partnered with a scooter company in Toronto. We said, hey, we can, you know, sort of like a, uh, it was, they had like a point of sale, like, um, uh, buy now, pay later type option. But it, most sure. of the time, gig workers were not eligible for this buy now, pay later option yeah. because they didn't meet the criteria. So like, hey, well, and there was one scooter company, particularly downtown Toronto, they're like, you know, 75% of the Uber couriers that walk in are not eligible for our financing pro programs. They're like, well, we'll finance them, you know? So we jumped in and we financed a whole bunch of people to buy scooters. Um, anyways, we learned a lot in this process. Yeah. Ultimately, the product is not that anymore, but it just got us talking to customers very yeah. frequently. Uh, yeah. So we were off to the races at that point. That's interesting. I mean, so just out of my own sheer nerdy curiosity, 
I mean, that's not cash flow underwriting, right? I mean, it's data underwriting, but yeah. the data is about past like proof of work almost. Yeah. And then you're forecasting the idea that the world will hopefully not be this way forever and that other, you know, or that they pivot into this other gig and that they're able to move forward. So basically you're just like, have you done the work? Like, have you worked yeah. hard enough to make this amount of money? Yeah, ever? Listen, I, I, none of us were, none of us were like credit people. Um, yeah. Not okay. a sustainable credit product. We were, okay. we were lucky because we started the business. We had, we had some cash in the balance sheet. Uh, that was, did you lend that cash? Is that how it started? Yeah. And, wow. and uh, <laughs> so I look back at that time and we, we, we spent hundreds of thousands of dollars on defaults for a, an early stage oh, company. I'm sure. And, yeah. uh, but we learned a ton, right? So it was just sort yeah. of like the, the cost to get on the street and talk to, yeah. Yeah. And, um, and, and there was sort of two, I'd say two primary theses. One was, you know, the history of your work and we could actually pull that data. We could see, you know, how many months in a row had you consistently driven, even if the, the work was different. Like, let's say you used to be a driver and you were pivoting into food delivery on a different app. Right. We, would, we would use that to say, Hey, like, it seems like you're a pretty consistent, hardworking person. And we'd have, we had like a, a simple, really formula to determine whether we don't, we'd, we'd uh, uh, approve you for, for a loan. Yeah. Um, and then I think the other thesis that was a little bit more subjective and qualitative was that when you heard stories of layoffs at the beginning of the pandemic and unemployment going up, um, the one place where that seemed to not be true was in the gig economy where, you know, People were actually extremely resilient. If you're if you were an Uber driver who lost rides, you know, a week later you were an Instacart shopper doing groceries, right? And like, so the ability to pivot that quickly in your career, like a traditional a traditional industry, laying off thirty percent of their staff, those people stay unemployed for months and months and months at a time and go on unemployment yeah. insurance. Gig workers, you know, we had a big gig platform in Toronto called Foodora that was like a food delivery service out of Europe that was operating in Canada for a while. And they pulled out of the country completely. And so all of a sudden there was like 5,000 uh, couriers in Toronto that had no app anymore. Within Holy a week, shit. they were all on DoorDash, you know? So yeah. we, we sort of like bet on that resilience saying, Hey, this, this is a demographic of people that they, they will hustle to find the gig. Right. Uh, because yeah. this is, they rely on it for their rent. They send money home to their families in a lot of cases. Um, yeah. and, it was a very imperfect underwriting mechanism, but uh, I think thematically we were right uh, in, in terms of like how to actually roll that out into a sustainable product. You know, a lot more to learn after that, but. Yeah. Well, I mean, just the, there's a cost to customer discovery, right? I mean, yeah, the, the, the amount that you would have spent building a debit card or something like that and just like throwing it at them probably wouldn't have manifested itself as well. You wouldn't have learned as much, but you probably would have spent yeah. more. So that, that makes sense. So what was the next step after that? So that, that is not what it is today. So t tell me the, give, give me that, uh, that transition well, it, into what it is today. it's not that we completely pivoted away from that. We still offer financing in the form of cash advances, but so two decisions that we had to make. One was what the, this product was very clearly unsustainable. We were not closely enough tied to sort of the entirety of their cash flow yeah. to be able to predictably, uh, collect money, uh, adjudicate appropriately. And so yeah. Pretty, we, we got pretty confident that we needed to become closer to source. So there was two ways to get closer to source in terms of like where they were earning. There was one path where we actually partnered directly with an Uber or a Lyft or whatever, and almost offer them a loan as a, like a partnership like offer through Uber where we, where we can almost guarantee the loan because we have like the ability to garnish your wages at source, right? So mm -hmm. we, we explored that area. We talked to a lot of the big companies uh, we were on, on the path towards doing a, a partnership with Uber in Canada on the on the e-bike program for their Uber Eats couriers. Um, ultimately, what turned me off is that 
right off the bat, we knew that we wanted to be we wanted to be neutral to what app you worked for. We wanted to support gig workers that spread their time on more than one app. Like we had people yeah. applying for loans that had 50% of their income on one app, 50% on another app. And the moment yeah. we started getting into this conversation with Uber, they're like, well, you can't work with Lyft and you're not allowed to work with DoorDash and we don't want you to work with Instacart. And so they, wow. they sort of expected sort of co-branding, white labeling, exclusivity. Sure. And so we're like, okay, maybe that's not the path for us. But we kept sort of that channel open while we discovered well, the other path we could go down is just become like a full service consumer banking product effectively right. And, right. and and move our loan into being a feature of an account. Uh, so if you are an account holder with us, if you bank with us, then all of a sudden you, you become eligible for this thing. We're not at source in terms of capturing your earnings, but we're the account to which your deposits are getting sent, right? So we're right. that much closer to like the flow of funds. Um so with that in mind, we started looking around, okay, how do people build products like this? Nobody on my team had built a fintech product before, right? So, right. Or a neobank or anything. Right. And so naively thought, okay, well, it won't be too hard to build a product that is in Canada and eventually extends into the US. Uh, lots of consumer products cross the border. I didn't realize at the time that fintech is a unique market where it's very specific to like a jurisdiction and a yeah. set of banking regulations and all this stuff. For sure. Yeah. Um, so, you know, long story short, we ended up realizing that the sort of banking infrastructure ecosystem in Canada is just not anywhere near where it is in the US. The banking as a service like layer, the synapses and the units and the treasury primes and these companies don't exist in Canada. Uh, and then when we had to make a choice, it was pretty obvious to us that the, the larger market was in the US. The I'd say the problem was more acute because in Canada we have a, a you know, depending on your political views, a better or worse social safety net. You know, there's more government support for these people. There's free health care. Uh, yeah. so there's less of like a yeah. dire need. They're uh, not as fucked. They're not as fucked is a good way to put it. And uh, and frankly, we wanted to capture the attention of Uber, Lyft, DoorDash, et cetera. We're like, well, the best way to do that is to be in their backyard. Like we need to yeah. be in the market that they care most about. Yeah. Uh, so let's go to the U.S. It makes sense. It makes sense. So you've learned a lot, decided on the U.S., now we get into the now now we get into you're wearing a hat so and I assume you don't have any gray hair based on your age but if you do have any now now we get into the reason that you might banking is a service oh, yeah. <laughs> and and building building banking products uh, in a compliant way that hopefully scales um, so tell me about. One, I guess just your experience kind of going around and doing the road show. Uh, you, you know, I used to work at a banking as a service company, so yeah. I experienced the, uh, the <laughs> other side of that road show, but it's, it's required. It's like, it's like when a comedian puts out a new special, they go on all the podcasts. When you're putting out a new product, you have to go talk to every banking as a service company. So what, yeah. what was that experience like? I mean, for one, it was it, like sort of purpose number one was let's get educated on what this actually yeah. is and what they what yeah. they offer. You know, we weren't coming from a background. I mean, I hired at this point, I had hired a VP product who came from like a consumer lending background in Canada. So she had a good, a good background in, in sort of consumer fintech, but not on the banking side. I mean, we were, right. we were sort of going into that a little bit blind. And so yeah. we reached out to all these companies really not knowing the difference. I didn't know what a program manager was. I didn't know like what the very, like the variations between you know, yeah. the scope of offering if you worked at the Galileo versus a Treasury Prime versus Synapse yeah. versus, you know, uh, a Marquetta. It, it wasn't even clear to me, like, why these weren't all exactly the same product. Like, they'd almost felt like they were direct competitors. But in reality, as you get more familiar with the space, you realize that they operate at sort of different layers and they offer either a 
a more complete full service or a, a lighter weight, you know, do a lot of it yourself, but they just provide some f- functionality for you. So yeah. we needed to one, get familiar with that, understand what features we were most interested in. We thought at the time we were going to go after a debit card and a consumer loan. Sort of like who offers the capability to do both a debit card and a consumer loan. That shortened the list quite a bit. Uh, we knew pretty pretty quickly after we started getting educated that like we didn't want to be our own program manager. We didn't have the expertise or the scale mm-hmm. or the time to go through. So who offered that sort of out of the box? That shortens the list quite a bit, right? So we got down to a couple of vendors Literally, um, literally that shortens it to a couple vendors, I would think. Yeah. Especially and, in 2020. Right. I mean, when, at what point were you building the, like building this banking product? We were, we were talking to, uh, the banking as a service, uh, vendors in December of 2020. December um, of and in okay. fact, what happened in December of 2020, that sort of changed course for us quite a bit is unit came out of stealth. Uh, unit yeah. announced their series a, they had just raised $18 million. I'd yep. never heard of this company before I reached out to their investors. I was looking at an MSA for a company that we were going to work with. We were having some hesitations. Um, and all of a sudden unit pops up on TechCrunch or something. And I was like, who yeah. are these guys? Right? Like, and yeah. we reached out and within a week we had decided let's not sign this MSA. Let's, let's talk, let's get to know this team a little bit better. Yeah. Um, and we ended up going down. I have, a, I have a question about that. Was that because of the humans that you had conversations with? Was that because of technical, like was there doc? I'm guessing it wasn't just because their documentation was a thousand times better. No, like, was it because a tie got on the phone with you? Was it a tie being a tie? A, t- a tie is, is a, is a big factor for sure. I mean, I have yeah. kind of respect for him. Um, but you know, I, I, I think a couple, a couple of considerations that came in. So one, the humans were very important to the, the level of priority we thought we would get from them. You know, mm-hmm. what I loved about unit at the time selfishly is that we were going to be within their first 10 customers and they were going to hold our hands and they were going to teach us effectively how to, because yeah. we were, we were going in blind. Right. So yeah. Yeah. other companies, you know, we were going to be a small fish and like a really big pond. We probably weren't going to get any specialized attention. Uh, and then it just felt like not only were the people, uh, people we'd like to work with, but they were just really high quality in terms of their work. Their product was going to be evolving alongside ours. So it was fine that it wasn't perfectly complete because we right. almost liked the fact that we were going to be watching them build their product while we built our product. Right. So um, I'd say, you know, a lot of those factors combined, but uh, Itai was yeah. definitely one of the the big decision factors. Yeah, I, I can imagine. I mean, the the trans it's so funny. I mean, it's a hard industry, man. It's a really, really hard industry. But the one of the things I love the most about Atai is just the level of transparency that he provides. Yeah. Like I've known him back from before I got into banking as a service. Actually, he was pitching unit to NBKC, the bank that I worked for before I was at Bond. And, um, you know, he that man learns openly. There were a couple, there were a couple things where we were on phone calls where I had like my CEO and my CFO and folks like that on. And we got to talking about like deposit sweeps and like how, um, you know, things could go into promontory or stone castle and just building deposits in a, in a fee create, you know, a fee income creating kind of or fee revenue creating kind of a way. And it's high. Didn't, necessarily have the best answer he wasn't like uh, I'm, I'm, I'm not really sure we hadn't yeah. thought about we hadn't thought about the best case scenario yet you know <laughs> and he didn't necessarily have an answer on like promontory or uh stone castle or they're going to build their own or anything like that yeah. and that one conversation and that one thing that he didn't quite know 
led to NBKC kind of being like, eh, I don't know, because we were already on board with another banking as a service company. But fast forward like a week later and Atai followed up with me with like the exact answer and seven other dependencies that he found out as a result of it and had built the whole thing into the product within like five, seven days. Yeah. I was just like fucking mind blown by it. Yeah. I mean, I'm so impressed by their speed. Yeah, I know. It's pretty incredible. I mean, and, and you know, one of the first calls we got on, he had this Google Slides one page sort of architecture diagram of like, here's your product, here's how it needs to work, here's where we fit in, here's what we can solve for you. And I'm like eating this up because I'm learning just by listening to him. I was like, oh, is that yeah. how I have to architect my product? Okay, that's helpful to know. Yeah. And like, and, and I'm like, actually, you, you misunderstood this part of it. And he's just like live editing on the screen with me. And it just felt, it felt like the type of relationship that was gonna help us go quickly. And, and, uh, yeah. and it's been that ever since. So uh, yeah. no regrets on that front. Did you think about going the uh, the build your own kind no, of situation? No, I, I mean, I, I think I think these are probably decisions that, you know, you definitely have to revisit at some point in the the evolution of, sure. a, of a company just yeah. based on the economics and like where you rely heavily on like a third party. Like right now, I think the stage we're at, we are perfectly well suited for what unit provides. And my suspicion is as as they see customers grow, they will probably morph their offering towards their larger customers will probably get a different product than their smaller customers, right? In terms of like how much they do for you versus how much you can do yourself uh, and what that translates to in terms of pricing. The other thing I really appreciated about Unit is just a full transparency into how how the money moves and who's making money where. You know, yeah. where does Blue Ridge make money? Where does Unit make money? Where do we make money? There's not there was nothing obscure about it. It's just like I understood exactly how we would what we would have to pay. I understood exactly what they were earning. Um, and it was just an open conversation, not just like a price list with no explanation, right? So um, all of these things for a first-time fintech founder just gave me a lot of confidence that they were going to be the right partner. Yeah. Yeah. I'm going to have to reach out to a tie after this and get like a, a retroactive sponsorship for the second half of this conversation. Um, but, <laughs> but, I do, but lot, I do a lot of tie promotion. I talk to a lot of his prospective customers around why right. they should be working with him and things like that. So I'm not on the cap um, table and I do a lot of tie promotion. Yeah. So I, you know, it is what it is. Sometimes you just meet people that you love and I yeah, love that totally. man. Um, but in all seriousness, though, like having had to do that kind of, you know, kind of do that roadshow, granted, you you were about to sign an MSA before you met this team. Do you have any advice for founders in the space that are kind of going through this process? Because there's some listening. Yeah, I mean, I, I think what what's obvious to me a year and a bit later, we started working on it with unit in January of last year. So call it a year. Yeah. Um, is that what we thought our product was going to be uh, was only like really part of what the product is actually turning into. So I'd say if we were too strict on the specific requirements and the specific scope and the specific functionality, uh, I think we would have made the decision on the wrong basis. Like we would have been looking for who does the exact things that we need them to do right now, given what we yeah. think our product should look like right now. I mean, in any field, but in fintech, it's no different. Your product is going to evolve as you learn from your customers. And so what you really need in a partner is not a set of features, but it's it's like the an ability to like co-create, collaborate, 
and almost learn together. Um, because for sure, a year after build starting to build your product, your product is going to have things that you never contemplated. It's going to have taken a direction that you never could have planned for. Uh, and so all of a sudden, the features that you thought you needed are only partially relevant. Um, and then you just want to make sure you're in bed with the right partner, that you actually feel like this is somebody I could talk to every week. This is a team that I feel like you know responds to our needs and cares about the success of our business. Um, cause, and then are they actually capable enough to move quickly when you need them to move quickly? Like when we do yeah. need something new built, are they reacting in a way that actually prioritizes our time, our timelines and our requirements, right? So, uh, you know, there's definitely a, a part of this that is competence, uh, but you know, you're going to be trying to solve problems in real time, make sure that the team you're working with is like somebody that you actually enjoy solving problems with. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's <laughs> like, good this advice. is not a static space, right? It's not right. like I consume a license on a product today and the product looks and feels exactly the same way 12 months from now, 24 months from now, like their products are evolving and you have a, a, a very strong influence into how their products evolve based on the yeah. requirements of your product. Right. So yeah. Um, yeah, that relationship needs to be sort of paramount. I'm starting to, I'm, I'm making a little bit of an assumption here, but based on your average user and what moves is and everything else, I would imagine that you may have been one of the reasons that they move so fast to partner with Abound on the tax withholding and remittance stuff. Are you guys using any of that? Uh, we're not yet. I mean, I know Trent and his team quite well. Okay, it's it's on the roadmap. I, I mean, I'll say. We're not the only 1099 banking service building on unit, right? Where I think we're. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no. Uh, no, no so I'm, I won't take yeah. credit for that. I mean, they've yeah. got some great companies like Lance and and Rathos yeah. and others that are building. Hey, you, you said products. Lance. I didn't. I just want to be clear that I did not bring Una up. You did. <laughs> <laughs> and, and so yeah, I suspect a lot of the abound work sort of came through those channels. We're going to yeah. be the beneficiaries of that type of work because like all of this stuff, the more plug and play, the more integrated it is. You know, our 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 thesis is a little bit different in the sense that um, we need to first aggregate all your sources of income. So we need to first say, hey, if you work for DoorDash, Uber and Lyft, I first need to become like the primary account through which you, your cash flows and you earn and you spend. And then I'm well positioned to say, let me help you solve for your taxes. Let me help you understand your deductions and yeah. your filing requirements and all this stuff. Uh, but it's definitely sort of a stage two in our roadmap after having been able to aggregate like that, that sort of primary banking relationship in stage one. Interesting. This is potentially a very stupid question. Um, and tell me I'm an idiot if I am. <laughs> I know I am. So be nice to me, I guess, actually. Uh, but I'm thinking about that, right? The, the idea of you being able to holistically view this whole thing. And then I think about some of the, I think I go back to your previous world and then some of like these mining organizations that are like, well, I'm going to mine Solana right now. I'm going to mine Bitcoin yeah. now. I'm going to do this now. I'm going to do this now. Does that exist in terms of like time allocation in the gig space? Like, could you take, could you say to someone based on where you are and yada, yada, like Uber sucks today, Lyft sucks today, but D Jesus Christ, everybody needs like groceries. So like today is a good day for you to go Instacart. Tomorrow is a good day for you to do this. Like, can you, yeah, there are, there are, there are products doing that. I mean, sort of like optimization okay. of earnings. I mean, I think there's, there is an opportunity there. There's surge pricing. There's sort of like, right. that, like what I find with our users typically is that they found a routine in their week that captures they don't need of those optimizations, yeah. right? Like yeah. just manually, they know that uh, Saturday afternoons are more popular for grocery delivery. Lunchtime yeah. is more popular for food. You know, so they, they sort of know and, and they know if you're in a given city, 
Amazon will sort of advertise the, the windows that are package pickups. So you can do Amazon flex delivery, go pick up packages, but they're only available right. during certain hours. So right. a lot of these workers have built a schedule around what they, what is like probably the 90, 95% optimal schedule. There probably is a way to improve that by five, 10% in real time to say, Hey, I'm going to give you dynamic data that says there's a baseball game ending right now. And there's huge search pricing on Lyft, go to Lyft, go to the baseball game, whatever. Um, that's not where we focused. I mean, there are products that I think are probably good, uh, par- like partners or, or complementary services that we like. We've done some work with a company called Gridwise. Gridwise is one of these companies that works for like Uber and Lyft drivers. And their original product premise was let's help Uber and Lyft drivers decide when to drive for Uber, when to drive for Lyft. Uh, and that and you can have a dashboard and it sort of tells yeah. you the surge in different parts of the city and things like that. Uh, and so we've done a partnership with with uh, Gridwise where we're like promoting to their users around like the services that we offer. Right. So it's complementary from that perspective. But you're not yeah. wrong. I mean those. There definitely is an opportunity there, but it's not, hasn't been our focus. Yeah. yeah and it makes sense that it's probably only like a five to 10% bump kind of probably not world changing versus the banking industry has not been, <laughs> uh, not been exactly paying attention to the gig economy. So there's a, yeah. speaking of migraine level problems, that makes sense. Well, man, in terms of time, I want to be respectful of yours. Um, our final question is how can the for fintech sake audience help you? And also as part of that, how can they get in touch with you? Um, I, I, I'll try to push my Twitter as probably the, the primary place that I'll, I, I'm trying to have more conversations about what we do. Uh, so at Matt spoke on Twitter, um, I'd say there's a couple of paths for us in terms of where we could use help. Um, The long-term goal for us is to be seen in the gig economy as like an at-scale complementary partner to companies like Uber, Lyft, DoorDash, et cetera. But when you get started, you're the small fish in their pond, right? These companies Mm -hmm. all have their own fintech products in market. They all have their own branded debit cards and they all fail to see that they've created these little like isolated walled gardens where if you're an Uber and Lyft driver, you have an Uber debit card and a Lyft debit card. And it's obvious to us that that's a bad UX to have like two bank accounts for half your earnings, right. uh, but it's not obvious to them. So, you know, ultimately we're going to be building more relationships with these companies. So to the extent that people are well connected in, the, in that space, uh, we're already making inroads, but I think ultimately we're going to want to have a better footing to engage with Uber, engage with Instacart, engage with Lyft. Uh, even some of the smaller ones, like we work with 16 apps that we support. So it's not always the big four or five. There's some smaller ones that are more regional, more local that uh, to the extent that we could build relationships with them, that that's hugely valuable. So, I mean, that would be a, a, an area that people could, uh, could help out. All right. For FinTech sake squad, come to the rescue at Matt spoke, holler at the man. Let's see if we can build some relationships with him. Matt, I appreciate you, brother. Thank you for this. This has been a blast. I've learned a ton. um, And you just, you have a fascinating life, man. We're going to have to catch up and catch up in a year or two, do this again and kind of find out where, uh, where the gig economy lies and, and where you're sitting. Maybe we'll have you in the U S by then. Love it. Thanks for joining the conversation, everybody. Hope you enjoyed our time with Matt at Moves. Jump into the show notes to learn more about Matt and find out everything there is to know about Moves. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, review, and all the other things I'm supposed to remind you to do in your favorite podcast app. I just held in a belch. That was impressive. And if you want our weekly emails, go to forfintechsake.com and subscribe there. Until next time, stay healthy, keep your head high. And just keep going, everybody. We're going to make it. Bring some love in the world. Bring some love in the world.